This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 30th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. When you are charged with a crime, the government is typically required to show that you meant to do so. That requirement, known as mens rea, has diminished in its importance at both the state and federal level. At the State Policy Network's annual meeting this year, Robert Alt, president of the Buckeye Institute in Ohio, spoke with me about the importance of criminal intent and how states and Congress can reestablish its proper role in criminal law. Uh, it's it's very unfortunate. This is uh, this has been a trend we've noticed in the law for a while. Traditionally, uh, the the traditional requirements of the criminal law, you had to commit a, a, a bad act. Uh, you know what what lawyers call an actus reus. And you had to, to have a guilty state of mind, what lawyers refer to as mens rea or criminal intent. Um, but we've noticed over the years, both at the congressional level as well as at state levels, more and more crimes are being passed that, ha- that either have no criminal intent requirement at all, where you can be convicted for mere accidents, um, or they have inadequate mens rea requirements or criminal intent requirements. Um, So what uh, actions or behaviors constitute criminal intent? That is, it's a lower standard? Uh, in, in the cases where they have inadequate uh, 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 criminal intent requirements, uh, you know, sometimes the, what's required to get a conviction would not be sufficient, we think, to keep someone who's genuinely trying to follow the law from accidentally violating the law. Or, again, in cases where there's no criminal intent requirement, there you can, you can actually go to jail for a complete accident. And let me give you a story, it just, just sort of put it into a real context of, uh, of something like this that happened. Um, Bobby Unser, uh, um, who won the, uh, who's, I, I forget if he's two or three time IndyCar champion, was out uh, at, at his home in, Col- in uh, New Mexico and he went out with a friend snowmobiling uh, one weekend. Um, they uh, uh, they went to an area where which was very common for people to snowmobile, and uh, they were testing out his new his new machines. Um, his friend uh, during the course of the day he got his snowmobile stuck, and so he got onto to Bobby's snowmobile, and they got caught in a ground blizzard uh, to the point where they literally couldn't see where they were going, uh, and Bobby's snowmobile got stuck. They ended up spending two days out in the wilderness in, in, uh, in deep snow, came back. Um, there's actually news footage. They, you know, literally, you know, struggling for their lives to get out. Um, and so once he got out of the hospital, Bobby contacts folks from the wilderness, uh, uh, from the park service, trying to find out where it is that his snowmobiles were, uh, where he left them, because he really had no idea the conditions were that terrible out there. After looking at some maps and talking to him and asking questions, and uh, you know, they determined that it seems like, and they weren't even sure, but it seems like he may have wandered into a wilderness area. Um, and this was important because Congress had authorized the Secretary of Agriculture to make rules punishable by up to six month, months in prison. Uh, and the Secretary, the Secretary of Agriculture passed a regulation, uh, didn't have to be approved by Congress, which said, quote, the following are prohibited in a national forest wilderness, possessing or using a motor vehicle, motor boat, or motorized equipment, except as authorized by federal law. Well, what's missing there? 
there's no criminal intent. It's not that you have to knowingly, recklessly, purposefully uh, uh, operate a motor vehicle. You just have to operate a motor vehicle in a wilderness area. You don't have to know that you're in a wilderness area. Um, you don't have to know that it, it, you certainly don't have to know that it's against the law to operate in the wilderness area. So the fact that he may have at some point in blizzard conditions wandered into a wilderness area, that was enough to convict him under this act. Moreover, you're talking about a federal regulation that does not require any, any congressional input. You add to that the fact that there's no criminal intent requirement. How many of these kinds of regulations or laws are on the books? Well, it, it, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, it, it's a question that I wish that, quite frankly, that, that Congress would ask. Let's take a step back and even talk about federal laws, federal criminal laws, ones that actually were passed by Congress. In 1998, uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association, created a task force on the federalization of crime. One of these traditional blue ribbon panels with, you know, folks from the prosecution, you know, prosecutors, defense attorneys, uh, you know, uh, folks from both parties. Uh, and they came to a, a, a conclusion early on, not only that, that f the federalization of crime was a, was a problem, but they, they acknowledged that the body of federal criminal law was so large that there's no conveniently accessible complete list of federal crimes. So they had to commission a study. That study found that there were over 3,000 federal crimes at the time. Uh, we, when I was at the Heritage Foundation and the Legal Center, we updated that study in 2007 uh, using the same – working with, I believe, the same professor who did the original study. By 2007, uh, the number had jumped to uh, nearly 4,500 crimes, uh, which is roughly an increase of uh, 56.5 crimes per year. Basically, a new crime is passed by Congress every week. But those are the ones that actually make it through Congress. What you, what you asked me about were actually federal uh, criminal regulations, ones that you know, an agency can go ahead and promulgate without getting any input from Congress. The, the answer to that is no one knows how many they are, there are. Professor Coffey uh, uh, up at, uh, in New York estimated that the number of regulatory crimes exceed 300,000. Um, and that's an estimate? That's an estimate. So, uh, so no one knows for sure. But this actually really, when you begin to have this many crimes, and then you, you, you look at the scope of some of these crimes. So many, many folks listening today may have heard about the Lacey Act. Um, the Lacey Act uh, essentially makes the fish and wildlife laws of every country in the world uh, makes violation of those laws a violation of U.S. federal law. So if you're doing business in a foreign country, you potentially could, could face criminal liability here in the United States if you violate the fish and wildlife laws of any country in whatever language they're written in. So when you have that many laws that are incorporated in, in, into U.S. federal law, over 4,500 federal criminal laws, over 300,000 regulations, you begin to question the, the lasting wisdom of the old adage in the law that ignorance of the law is no excuse. This was a principle that, that, that uh, is revered in the law, but built up at a time where the number of crimes, particularly felonies, 
were few. Uh, they were knowable. You didn't you didn't need to go, necessarily go and grab a law book to to understand you know what what. Uh, what the potential criminal offenses were that you could be charged with. Now, quite frankly, there's a, there are numerous laws that are, again, what we would call in the law malum prohibitum. They're, they're not wrong in and of themselves. It's not like murder you know, or, or crimes of violence. Uh, you know, they're regulatory offenses. You failed to file the proper paperwork on the proper date. That could be a criminal offense. And there's no way you would know that without actually reading the the law or the regulation. When it comes to criminal intent, what can be done at the state level to establish that here's what we mean when we talk about a person committing a crime, they must have some knowledge that what they're doing is a crime and and that they intend to do it. Well, this is where I'm 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 actually very excited to 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 talk about what we've done in Ohio. Uh, because it's something I think that could be replicated in states across the country and something, quite frankly, that Congress should look at as well. We put in place uh, uh, at the end of last year, Buckeye was instrumental in working with the legislature uh, to pass uh, what I think is the best in the nation default criminal intent requirement in Ohio. And essentially what it does is two things. Number one, if the legislature passes a law and it doesn't have a criminal intent, it has a criminal element in it, but it doesn't have a criminal intent requirement in it. Um, if, if that makes it through the whole process uh, uh, without having that criminal intent requirement, it's void. The, the criminal provision itself is entirely voided by the lack of the criminal intent requirement. To my knowledge, no other state and the federal government has nothing like that. So what does that, what does that mean if, if, the, if the criminal element is voided? Uh, the, the, the entire criminal provision gets stricken from the law. It doesn't exist. That's no longer part of the law. So you get rid of that crime. It's, it's I think, very strong medicine to the legislature uh, require, because if, they do, if they're sloppy, and quite frankly, a lot of the problems with these, sometimes you've got legislatures that are putting forward legislation that lack adequate criminal intent requirement, and you know, sometimes they're doing it to make it easier for the prosecutor. Prosecutors sometimes are doing it deliberately, but unfortunately, you know, in the sausage-making process of legislation, sometimes it's just sloppy draftsmanship. And we had, when we were passing, uh, working with the legislature uh, on this particular piece of legislation, uh, there was conversation among the legislators in which they conceded that there was, there was in fact a, a, a new sentencing provision that they were passing that didn't do what they thought it was going to do because they hadn't properly drafted the criminal intent requirement. So it, it happens more than we would like to admit, quite frankly. So this, this would simply get rid of those crimes. Now, if the crime's already on the books, obviously, you know, we're, uh, we've got a huge body of criminal law in Ohio already, then it would apply a, criminal in, a default criminal intent requirement to every element of the offense, uh, not just to the offense as a whole. And this is important uh, because uh, Ohio and some other states, the way the courts interpret the laws, if it has a criminal intent requirement with regard to one part of the law, that may be, they've said, well, that's enough. We don't need, if there's multiple parts to the law, we don't need to actually have a criminal intent requirement as to every part. So how this could work out in practice, the example I frequently give, um, uh, let's say that there is a law in the books, and it has a criminal intent requirement. It says that, that it's unlawful to knowingly possess uh, an artifact taken from a, 
from a particular type of park, um, from a national park. Let's say, for instance, grandfather gives grandson uh, an arrowhead, which would be an art, you know, a protected item under this law. Uh, but grandfather tells grandson a tall tale of how he got this, that, you know, uh, uh, that he was a friend with this Indian chief who gave it to him many years ago and so forth. When, in fact, grandpa pocketed the arrowhead when he was walking through a national park last month, uh, grandson, under this law, would be com potentially committing a crime. He knows that he possesses the item. He didn't know that it came from a national park, but uh, courts in Ohio reading that statute would, would have potentially said he doesn't have to know that it came from a park. Uh, there's no criminal intent requirement for that particular part of the law. So this would say we're going to actually require uh, a criminal intent element, uh, uh, element for every part of the law. Could Congress do something similar with regulations that don't have criminal intent requirements but are, I mean, separate from the problem of agencies just creating regulations that have criminal penalties attached to them? Could uh, the Congress just say, well, from now on, if there's no criminal, you can't show criminal intent, then that regulation is void as well? Uh, certainly. I mean, they, they, there's a number of things they could do. They could go ahead and uh, uh, they could go ahead and, and, and do, put in place a default, men, a default criminal intent requirement, both for legislation, things that they pass, as well as for regulations. They could put something saying, going forward, no regulation shall be valid unless it has a criminal intent requirement, um, uh, which would be the same thing, essentially voiding anything that, that doesn't meet that requirement. And what I want to be clear about is, this doesn't tie. This does not tie the legislature, legislature's hands with regard to this in the future. The legislature at any time can can in passing a law uh, say that they want it to be strict liability. Say, which is to say, say that they don't want there to be any criminal intent requirement. Simply committing the act, we're going to say, is enough for you to be convicted. But they would have to affirmatively assert that but within the legislation. They would have to make it clear that that's what they're doing. They couldn't just by by simple omission by simple failure to put in the criminal intent requirement, have it be treated that way. And the, and the problem is, again, we see a lot of errors of omission. We see a lot of times where, again, in, in you know, sort of the frenetic process of last minute drafting, you can have something thrown in there and it doesn't have the criminal intent requirement uh, necessary. And, it, and then that somehow is treated like that was a strict liability offense, that, like that was something where there was no criminal intent required. One of the other things I think that, uh, that that state legislatures could do, something else that we're working on on in Ohio, we're actually doing a complete criminal code revision uh, where you know this is this is fairly blue sky where we're going back, we're taking a look at all the crimes that are on the books and asking a, a, a series of serious questions. Should this be a crime? Uh, if it, it uh, still be a crime, or is it outdated, outmoded, not necessary anymore? If it should be, is it? Uh, have we ratcheted up the uh, the penalty to to an undue level? You know, 
over time there's been a creep. Something will be a misdemeanor. That then we'll do a sentencing enhancement. You know, over time misdemeanors become felonies. Over time felonies end up having mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, you know, or or have you know much longer sentences. So we're taking a look and and reassessing all of these questions. Um, which again, when you look at the expansion both at the state and federal level of of criminal laws. You look at something like fraud uh, uh, at the federal level. No question that that there's a role for criminalizing fraud, but in fact, there's I believe over 100 federal statutes uh, that regulate fraud. Uh, at this point, there's so much duplication. Any time that there's a new part of the problem is you know I, I think there's there's a, a sort of incentive. Any time there's a new scandal, uh, you know the most dangerous place to be in Washington is, uh, is, is, of course, between a congressman and a microphone. And what are they going to say when they get to that microphone? They're going to say that they're going to do something about this scandal. And among, among their favorite tools is let's create a crime that addresses whatever you know, this recent scandal is. Well, the fact of the matter is, at this point, we've got crimes on the books that, that, that frequently address whatever the underlying malfeasance is. But we'll go ahead and create a new crime so that we can show that we've done something, something that may address that particular industry um, so that we can show that we're, you know, we're being responsive on that. Uh, there's plenty of room to go through and remove a lot of the duplication, a lot of the dead wood that's developed both in the federal code uh, as well as uh, as well as at the state level. So I'm pleased that Ohio has taken the, uh, a leadership role on criminal intent reform, but I also think that, and this is a heavy lift. There was a, a uh, there was a, a move in Congress to try and you know take a look at the criminal code sometime back. Um, this is something that that you you're really going to have to get leadership from uh, from a member who's got a depth of knowledge on this. But it could be really rewarding in terms of uh, 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 making a leaner criminal code. Robert Alt is president of the Buckeye Institute in Ohio. Subscribe to this and other podcasts at Cato.org.